My name is Spencer, and I am one of the pastors here. We're jumping right in to where we left off last week. Last week, we began the calling of Moses, and this is part two of that. So we're going to be in Exodus 4, uh, which is uh, on page 27 in your blue Bibles. We're going to be in the first 26 verses. So we started off last week in chapter 3. Moses is tending sheep in the wilderness. He comes upon Mount Horeb, and then... God calls out to Moses from a burning bush. And in this calling of Moses, God does a few things. He announces his plan, that he has seen the affliction of his people. He has seen that they've been in slavery for centuries, and that he's going to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land, and he's going to use Moses to do it. He reveals who he is. Moses asks, what is your name? And he gives his personal name. I am who I am. And we looked at that and the power and the mystery that is packed into that name. And he tells Moses that he's going to use him to lead them out of the promised land. They won't just leave the promised land empty-handed. That he will loot the enemies. He will take from the Egyptians as they will give gold and jewels and clothing. In the midst of all this calling, we see a question that arises that starts to show that Moses has some doubts. In verse 11 of chapter 3, Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That Moses is focused on his weaknesses, on his inadequacies, and God is trying to help him see, Moses, it's by my power. I'm the one who's going to be with you. It's going to be by my power that I bring the people out. And we're going to see this continue into chapter 4. That Moses is going to continue to doubt and God is going to continue to point to himself. Moses is too focused on his weaknesses, on his inadequacies. He's too focused on himself and he's not focused on what God is telling him that I will be with you, that I'm the one that is going to bring them out. It's going to be by my power. And we're going to see how God's response to Moses is incredibly helpful to us. We're going to see that God's redemption of his people and the obedience that he calls us to is only possible. It is only possible if we stop looking at ourselves and start looking to God. Because we, like Moses, we make God far too small and ourselves far too big. So that's what we're going to see. Let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through this together. Lord, we ask that you would help us be present this morning. You'd help us receive the word of God, and that we respond. We respond in how you call us to, in faith and repentance, and to worship and delighting in who you are. So God, I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we're in the middle of this calling story. We're picking right up where he left off. He just said... Repeated his plan. I'm bringing them out of Egypt. I'm using you. They are leaving with jewels and gold and clothing. And then Moses answered, verse 1. Moses answered, But behold, they will not listen. They will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So Moses again doubts. He says, What if they don't listen to me? Which, absent from God, is a very reasonable question for Moses. you got to remember, Moses spent 40 years with one foot in the Egyptian royal family and another foot as a Hebrew. 
okay? Not really belonging fully to the Egyptian royal family, not a slave like the rest of his Hebrew brethren, okay? So that's reasonable that they might have some doubts. Also, he's been gone for 40 years. He's 80 at this point. I mean, he's presumed gone, dead. And he's supposed to rock back up and say, the God, the God of your forefathers appeared to me, and, I'm, and, and we're, we're getting out of here. It's a very reasonable question, absent from the Lord. But the Lord is with him. He's not absent. So it's not a reasonable question. Moses is focusing on himself. He's made himself too big. He's made God too small. And God answers by displaying his power. So pick it up in verse 2. It says, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. So, again, context here. Moses is 80, okay? He's 80 years old. He probably uses that staff for more than just shepherding. It's probably some support, okay? God says, take that, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And he does what has been instinctual for thousands of years. He runs, all right? 80 years old, geared up his loins, haul tailing out of there. He gone, like just not dealing with a snake. And listen, we're going to see this happen later in Exodus. The staff is going to turn to a snake again, the presence of Pharaoh. And that snake eats two other snakes. So this is not a small snake. Think 10, 12-foot king cobra, big, scary-looking snake. So if you're afraid of snakes, you are in good company with Moses. And then it says, verse 4, But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he tells him, Catch it by the tail. So, if, listen, if we were a crazy snake handling church, which, if you're new, disclaimer, we're not. Okay? And I went and grabbed some snakes, took one, and threw it in the front row and said, Pick it up by the tail. What is implied in my request? A little bit of trust. I'm telling you to pick it up. It's not going to bite you. Which I learned a thing this week. That actually picking up by the tail requires even more trust. Because that's not the way you're supposed to pick up snakes. Apparently it's by the head. Okay? We have a teaching team. Isaac and Chet on our teaching team. And I, was, I, I learned. Because I, I grew up watching Steve Irvin. And Steve Irwin picked up lots of snakes by the tails. So that was how I understood. That's how you pick. That's, that's, you just pick it up. But apparently you don't do that because it gives them enough reach to be able to bite you but I grew up in the lake we just shot snakes I didn't grow up at like Isaac at Bethel Christian camp out in the wilderness on his own like I didn't grow up like Chet 30 miles in the middle of nowhere like this is not an activity that we did but you're not supposed to pick them up by the tail this requires a little bit of faith here and Moses takes a step of faith it says so he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand and then the Lord says this, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. He's like, Moses, do you see what I just did? I took a staff, I turned it into a snake. I took the snake back into a staff. Do you see my power here? They will believe you. They will believe that the covenant God of their forefathers has called you. 
But here's some more evidence of my power. He gives a second sign. Verse 6, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses puts his hand inside his cloak. And he says, and put, he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow, which is terrifying, right? It's terrifying. Leprosy in their culture was awful. It was awful. It wasn't just the fact that you had a disease that you would slowly decay and die from for years. It was a great social stigma. You couldn't live amongst your own people. You'd announce that you were unclean. People were scared of you. I mean, there's, there's no cultural equivalent to what we have today. None. The closest thing you could probably make an argument for is maybe getting HIV in the 80s. But that doesn't even remotely come close to this. Seeing your hand as leprous is terrifying. And he sees the power of God on display. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. God is showing the kind of power that he has. Moses, do you see this? Do you see the power that I have? And then he offers one more son. This is verse 8. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So they don't believe those two signs. Do this. Take some water from the Nile, pour it out, it will turn into blood. Which if you know the story of Exodus, that's, that's going to end up being the first plague is turning the Nile into blood. So he says, listen, do this next. So, which is a little bit of future looking. You've seen these two signs. You're going to have to wait to see this one. Have a little faith here. But once you pour that out, I'm telling you, Moses, they're going to see that I am the God of your forefathers. I am calling you. They will believe you. Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me? And God says, do you not see it is my power at work here? Moses, do you not see it's not about you? You have made yourself far too big. And Moses has made God far too small. And yet Moses' doubts continue. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He says, I'm not eloquent. The Hebrew literally reads here, I am not a man of words. I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. And commentators look at this and the phrasing and how he answered this, and they say that it's very possible that Moses actually had some type of speech impediment some type of speech problem that he would use this type of language. So whether that is true or he's just not eloquent in speech, he's fearful. He's looking at himself and he's like, oh, but, I, but I'm not a man of words. Which this hits home, this hits home for me. If you've, I've, I've mentioned this in some sermons in the past, but I've, since I was a kid I've had a small, like a minor speech impediment that I've had to work on for years. Like I had speech therapy when I was a kid and that's continued, like that, continue for a little bit, and since then I've just had to realize that, that if you're in informal conversation with me, and for those of you that know me and have been in informal conversations with me, every now and then there's a really dumb look on your face, because, because I have an immense gift to take 
10 syllables and reduce them into five like that. And it's just my brain gets too out in front of me and I can't, the words just aren't picking up and it's really frustrating and I gotta stop and pause and think about it and restate it again. And that's frustrating. I have to work really hard to make sure that I'm clear when I'm preaching or when I'm in, in formal counseling settings to be, make sure I'm clearly understood. That's frustrating and at times can be very embarrassing. I'm sure that Moses probably felt some of this, especially when you think about the context of the Egyptian royal court that he's getting ready to appear before. Because the Egyptian uh, magicians, which we're going to see later on in Exodus, every court in the near, ancient Near East had different people that would do different things. Magicians, magi, different, different arts they would do, astrology, all of it. And the magicians of Pharaoh were known for being very good speakers. Very good with speech. And they were known for being proud of it. And Moses grew up in that royal family. There's got to be a part of that that says, I'm going to speak in front of them. That's a terrifying experience. Now, listen, you don't have, that, you don't have to have a speech impediment to, or any problems with speech to be able to see this and go, wow, this is actually a pretty terrifying thing to do. I mean, uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a joke where he says that the number one fear in America is public speaking, and the number two fear is death, which means that people would rather die than speak in public. That probably applies largely to our church, that that's probably a big fear to speak in public, and much more so to speak in public in a way that you would do so before Pharaoh. I mean, imagine if God called you to go to Russia and to speak before Putin and his cabinet. That's a terrifying calling. Moses is thinking about his inadequacies here, and he cannot see past that. He cannot see past the fact that God is with him. God is with him. And he answers fairly bluntly here to this fear. Verse 11 says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. He says, Moses, who made your mouth? Who gave you the ability to speak? Who made your eyes and your tongue and your ears? Is it not I, the Lord, that made all of this, that gave you the ability to do anything? Moses, I'm the God of the universe. I made you. Do you not see that I'll be with you? I'll be with your speech. Moses is too focused on his own inadequacies, on his own weaknesses, to understand that God is going to use him in spite of his weaknesses. That God's going to use him in spite of his inadequacies. That's what our God does. And we are just like Moses. I mean, God calls, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, God calls you, commands you, go share the gospel. And what happens? We get lost in our head. And it's like, oh, man, I just, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. What if I mess up the message? Like, what if, I, what if I say something that's not the gospel? Like, what if I, I don't know if I built enough of a friendship with this person? Like, do I have the relational capital or to, for them to receive this? Like, I don't know. Is this going to be weird? Will I make it weird? We do this. That calls us to all types of obedience. And we can only focus on ourselves and our inadequacies. And making ourselves too big and God too small. 
What are some of the things that God has called you to be obedient to? That you have similar responses to God, similar excuses to God. Because he calls us at all types of obedience. Well, I, 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 yeah, I, I'd give, but I just I don't know if I have the money right now. Like, I, I, I don't know. I'd go, but I don't, I don't, know, if I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to, to go yet. I love to help out with this. I love to contribute to this. I feel like God might be calling me this, but I don't know if I have the skills. I don't know if I have the talents. Yeah, I'd go to the mission field, but I'm not good with languages. I just, I don't know, I'm really comfortable in our own culture. I don't know if I like learning other cultures. I'd lead a group, or I'd be a leader in training, but I just, I, I don't know. It just seems like it's really hard and it's too difficult. I'd love to, God, but I just, I don't have I don't know if I have the time to be able to do this. We can give a thousand different excuses. We can give a thousand different excuses to God when he calls us to do a thing. But if the God of the universe calls you to do something, if he calls us to do something, do you not think that God will give you what you need? Do you not think that God will use you in spite of your inadequacies and your weaknesses? If God calls you to do a thing, trust him. Trust him. He will use us in spite of our own weaknesses. To be very blunt, if God calls us to do a thing, our self-doubt is irrelevant. It just is. We make ourselves far too big and God far too small. So Moses, like us, focuses on himself so much so that after all of this, he still persists in this self-doubt. Verse 13 says, But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> please, just send someone else. So many missionaries have felt that. Just, oh, please send someone else. So many pastors have felt that. Please call someone else. So many Christians have felt that. Please, God, send someone else. And then it says in verse 14, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Then God, righteously so, is angry because he's continued in self-doubt. And then a wild twist happens, which I would not have predicted. It says, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Which confirms, Moses really does have a speech problem. Because he's saying, I, I, okay, I know Aaron can speak well, which implies you can't. But he makes a concession, which is just wild to me. That God's calling him, and he's just like, I'm going to meet you in the middle. I don't know, we don't know why he does that. We don't know if he just saw that Moses didn't have the faith at this point in the journey. But he concedes, and he meets him in the middle. And he says, ah, don't, your brother Aaron, the Levite, will use him. He will speak for you. And apparently, in the text, it seems, God anticipated this because he's already on the way. It says, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart, which is, he will be. He hasn't seen him for 40 years. Then it says, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hands this staff, with which you shall do the signs. So he says, Moses, 
I'll give you Aaron. I'll give you your brother. You will be as God to him. So Moses is a mediator. Stands between God and the people. We're going to see this throughout Exodus. So you will be as God to him. And then he's going to stand between you and the people, speaking on behalf of you, receiving from the Lord. That convinces Moses. He's like, okay, I'm in now. And he's prepared to be obedient and to leave Midian to go back to Egypt. So, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Which is just weird. That's a weird way of asking. We don't know why he didn't just tell him what happened in the wilderness. But he just goes about saying in a weird way that let me go back to Egypt and see if my brothers are still alive. But this convinces Jethro to trust Moses to take his daughter and his grandsons. It says, and Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So Jethro gives his blessing. Verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So he gives Moses some more comfort here. Say, listen, all the people that sought your life when you killed the Egyptian, all those 40 years ago, they're all dead. No one is seeking your life. Go. Go back to Egypt. So, verse 20, Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So he saddles up the donkey. Maybe they had saddles, I don't know. Puts his wife on the donkey, puts his two sons on the donkey with her, and they're going back to Egypt. Staff in hand, ready to perform the signs. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. You refuse to let him go. Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, way back to Egypt, God, this is going to be a regular thing at this point. Moses is a prophet. God is going to be regularly coming to him, speaking to him. He says two things that if you have not been through the book of Exodus before, are fairly jarring. He says, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart Okay? Which means I'm going to make it so that he does not let you go. I'm going to control his heart. And when he does not let you go, I'm going to kill his firstborn son. And if you know the rest of Exodus, it's not just his firstborn son. It's the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. Now, if you've never been to the book of Exodus before, that is a fairly jarring thing to hear. It's a lot to absorb, and unfortunately, we don't have the space this week to get into that. Come back in two weeks, and we're going to spend some time on this subject, because he's going to, this is a theme that will keep showing up in Exodus, and we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. We have to move on to a much easier subject matter to close out today, circumcision. <laughs> this story of how we're closing out today is a bit of a curveball. 
12.6, it just, you don't see it coming. It just drops. And the more you zoom in on this story, the blurrier it gets. I mean, it's just, it's a fuzzy picture. You, got, you just got to take a step back from it and get the big picture because there's a lot going on in it. So, verse 24. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So, it's a pretty graphic scene. I'm going to try to explain what's happening here. I think that the main point of this passage right here is God's emphasis on holiness with his covenant people. It's an emphasis on the holiness of his people as he's in covenant relationship with them. You see, Moses was expected to uphold the command and the tradition that Abraham received. Circumcising on the eighth day, which is going to be codified into, it's going to be permanently put into the Old Testament law. You are to circumcise your sons. This was a sign of God's covenant relationship with his people. This was, this was it. The sign of the covenant. Circumcision. Now, Moses has been living in Midian for 40 years. The Midianites are not the people of God. They do not have this same tradition. They are not the people of God. They don't have this same command that they've inherited from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So in the midst of this, he has not followed God's command. But Zipporah, his wife, in a display of zeal for both keeping the covenant promise, for obeying that part of the covenant, and preserving her husband's life. We don't know how they know that God is angry. We don't know how they know that God is coming to kill Moses, which is just wild how this happens. It didn't happen in the midst of his calling. This happens right here. We don't know why this is happening right now. They sense it is coming, and she acts quickly. She grabs a flint knife. She circumcises her son, who we can tell from the context is not a baby. Not the words that are used. Sons are saddled on a donkey with her. They're not babies circumcises her son, then takes the evidence of that circumcision and places it at his feet. Zipporah, who is not an Israelite, is all in on being a part of the covenant people of God. She does not hesitate in holiness to obey this aspect of God's command. Now, that whole scene is super foreign to us. It is very weird and it seems to come out of nowhere. We're so far removed from the context here. But the ancient Near East, Eastern Jewish ear, when they hear this story, it makes sense. Circumcision was serious. It was the sign of the covenant, and Zipporah's actions are heroic. It is a display of faith in God and of holy obedience to him. And, I might add, Another display of a woman saving Moses' life. We've seen that multiple times in Exodus. Zipporah, it's very clear, she understands how big God was. She understands how powerful he was. 
And more to the point, she believed in the covenant of Moses' forefathers. And this is clear when she proclaims, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, we don't know all the nuances of what's built into that phrase. We don't. But at a minimum, it is linked to her belief in the covenant relationship that God has with his people. That's at a minimum of what's happening here. She believes that. And she acts quickly. And her faith saves her husband and preserves the redemption plan of God. And I would add, just in looking at this all week, I also think that this is a little bit of God teaching Moses what holiness is. I think a little bit of what's happening here is he's helping him see, if you're going to be the leader of my people, you need to understand that the people of God are called to be a separate people, called to be obedient. And if you're going to deliver the law, you're going to know what holiness means. So I think that's a little bit of what's happening in this story. So, this theme of God's covenant relationship with his people and this theme of holiness, all of this flows into the New Testament. It flows into the New Testament story. As Christians, we have a covenant that is sealed by faith and the blood of Christ. We believe that Jesus' blood is the covenant that saves us from destruction. And as we live out that faith as Christians, the goal is to see how big our God is and for us to decrease. To have faith that increases in how big and powerful our God is and for us to decrease all the more. And as we've seen the last two weeks, Moses' lack of faith displays that his view of God is too small. His view of God is too small and his view of himself is too large. But Moses doubts and doubts and he keeps focused on himself, focused on his own inadequacies and not the power of God. And we also see that his disobedience and not keeping the sign of circumcision further shows his smaller view of God. And yet, God chooses to use him. God chooses to use Moses. And as we're going to see throughout this story, Moses becomes one of the most pivotal figures in all of the scriptures. God chooses the lowly and the weak in faith to accomplishes his purposes. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is it that Zipporah is brought into the family of God, an outsider grafted into the family of God. This is who our God is. All of this, all the truth that we see that comes out of this passage is incredibly encouraging. If you are a Christian, if you placed your faith in Jesus, receive this. Don't miss how big and how great our God is. Some of y'all, some of y'all have been feeling the call of God to take steps of obedience. But your self-doubt has clouded how big our God is. That all you can focus on is your own inadequacies, your own weaknesses. You can't see God for who he is. And I want you to hear very clearly God chooses to use us in spite of our weaknesses to accomplish his purposes. That's who our God is. God loves to, I mean, look at the whole Bible. It's filled with stories of weak people, of sinners, of rebels that God uses to accomplish his purposes. 
And we get it, we get it twisted sometimes. Like we, we live in a culture that doesn't want to focus on your weaknesses. Just it's, it's a how awesome are you and how great are you and I've got the next self-help routine that's going to help you be the best you you can be so you can be as awesome as can be. And we focus on ourselves and look in the mirror and focus on ourselves and look in the mirror to fix ourselves as opposed to looking to God as our sufficiency, looking to God for our power, looking to God for our strength, looking to God for our wisdom. As Christians, we'll look to ourselves and try to improve and try to improve and try to improve. Or we'll look at ourselves and just be defeated and say, I, can't, I just can't do this. God, you're going to have to use someone else. And we are missing out on the calling of our God when he chooses to use us in spite of ourselves. Missing out on that type of worshipful obedience. So Christian, I don't know what God's calling you to, but whatever it is, take a leap of faith. Be obedient to the Lord because he chooses to use you in spite of your weakness. Some of you are checking out Jesus Checking out Christianity. You need to hear the same thing. Because the world puts on you that you're the solution to your problem. That you can fix it. That it's all on you. We live in the most self-absorbed, self-interested, self-focused, look-in-the-mirror, selfied-up era in history. And yet, we're some of the most unhappy, unfulfilled. Every poll bears it out unhappy, unfulfilled, medicated up as much as we can be, just, it's not the solution. Choosing self and focusing on yourself as opposed to looking to how big our God is, is not the solution. You were not designed to do that, not for a moment. God loves us so much that in our weaknesses, in our sin, he comes and he sheds blood and calls us into a covenant relationship with him through faith and the blood of Jesus and what he has done for us. And then God not only saves us in spite of our weaknesses, not only saves us in spite of our sin, not only saves us in, part of, in, in spite of all the things that we don't like to look at, but he uses us in spite of our weaknesses. And if you take the journey with God that Moses has chosen to take, you will not only experience the benefits that come in the gospel in faith, but you'll also experience the unbelievably rewarding obedience when we, call, when we are obedient to what God has called us to and we're used by him in spite of our doubts, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of the things that we look in the mirror and that we do not like. That is who our God is. And we're going to continue to see this as we follow Moses' story. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing one final song. The goal of approaching the word of God is to receive it and to allow the Holy Spirit to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. And we get to do that in response as we worship. 
that we get to be honest about the doubts and honest about the weaknesses and honest about the things in our lives that keep us from believing, that keep us from obedience, that keep us from enjoying who our God is. And we get to confess that before the Lord and say, God, take it. Give me faith to be obedient in spite of my own weaknesses. Give me faith to be obedient in spite of my weaknesses. Give me faith in what Jesus has already done for me so that I can experience you into eternity. That's what we're called to do as we hear the word of God. May we respond in faith and in worship and repentance and ultimately joy that is found in Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Moses' calling the last two weeks that we've got to sit in this and see how good you are to us. God, I pray that you would help us not be like Moses and be so focused on ourselves that we make ourselves out to be so big, but that you would give us faith to see how big you are and to see how small we are in light of your bigness and trust. Give us faith, O oh Lord, so that we can be joyfully obedient to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.